Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the Spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, D.C., we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. Father, as we come to um, our time together tonight in your word, we're grateful for this time that we've been able to spend in the letter to the Galatian churches. We're grateful for the way that your word continues to shape us and mold us and, and the way that your spirit can speak to us through it as a living and active instrument of your voice into our lives and our church, even now. And so we thank you that we get to open it again tonight and lift this time to you in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight brings the last in our series in Galatians, church. Um, so we've been in a journey through Gal- the letter to the Galatian churches since back in September. Um, it's taken us through the fall. We've been looking at the, what the Apostle Paul had to write to these churches that he started back in the first century. This letter was likely written as early as the 50s AD. I think it was probably the first of Paul's 13 letters that he wrote, the, of the 13 that we have. Um, and it's been a series that we've also taken time to look back at the impact that this letter had in the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago as we celebrated the 500th anniversary in October of Luther 95 theses being nailed to the church door in Wittenberg. And so that's been, it's been a great series. It's always a little bittersweet for me when we come to the end of a series together because um, it means that our time is closed in the letter to the Galatians and also means that we have exciting things ahead and we're able to look on to the next thing. Um, Just so you know, we are headed into Advent next Sunday, and so some, some years we have done Advent series, some we haven't, and this year we are doing an Advent series. Advent is traditionally a time of waiting and lament as we look ahead to the light of Christ breaking into the darkness. Um, this year we are going to do a series in the book of Habakkuk. Um, how many of you have read Habakkuk recently? There's so much we get to learn together. <laughs> so um, I'm excited for that. That'll be four weeks through the holiday seasons beginning next Sunday. Um, but tonight, we are in the final sermon in Galatians. And so um, we'll be in Galatians 6. If you have a Bible, you can open it with me to Galatians chapter 6. Tonight, it is, as it has been throughout this series, I think a timely and important text for us. We can look around right now at the world around us and see with shocking clarity that that so many of the things that we aspire to in our lives don't hold up to the aspirations that we have. And so we aspire, every one of us has aspirations toward something, toward success or wealth or notoriety or reputation or recognition. We've seen through the series in Galatians, but we can also see around us in this world right now that that at times those things that we pursue can actually become much more enslaving than they are freeing. And if we achieve them, then ultimately they can end up revealing our own brokenness and our own failure all the more clearly. And if we receive recognition and reputation and success and wealth and power, then our brokenness gets displayed publicly. Well, is 
the, the pathway to freedom in our lives we've seen in the letter to the Galatian churches. We've looked every single week at how the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us to live and frees us in our identity in Christ, that there is a pathway to true freedom. So I don't know if you've noticed, church, but of the weeks we've had in Galatians, all but the very first have used the title, used the word freedom in the title. And so we saw from the beginning that there is only one gospel that frees us, that brings us the freedom in Christ, and that from the beginning of chapter one, He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. So from the beginning, this is the good news of what Christ has done. That he has come to give us freedom, to freedom from our sins and freedom, deliverance from this world and this present evil age to present us to God, the Father, in accordance with his will. And so we saw in chapter one that, that if we rest in that truth, if we come to Christ and, and rest in God's promise in Christ, that that frees us from the need to please people, that we can be freed from the need to please any human being. That, that we saw in chapter two that we are freed then from religious chains. Paul recounted his own story as, as he went down to Jerusalem and met up with Peter and James and John and, and he brought Barnabas with him and that all of them came to agreement that, 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 you, that there was no need to add in religious law and rules on top of what Christ has done to earn our standing with God. In spite of that agreement, and, and so in the Galatian churches there was a particular issue that was hot. It was the issue of circumcision. And there were some in these early churches that were being started that said, to be a part of God's covenant community, we have to go back to the seal of the sign of Abraham and people and and men must be circumcised to come in. And Paul went down and worked this out with the other apostles and decided, no, that's not true anymore. That was the old covenant. Those things were fulfilled in Christ. And in Christ, there is freedom from that covenant and from those rules, from those religious chains. And in fact, that freedom knits us together as a new community and gives us right standing or righteousness in God's eyes only through Christ. It's a theological concept that we call justification. And so in Galatians 2, we read that that we know that a person is not justified or made right with God by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also looked at how the, the Protestant Reformation captured that theologically with, five, with, with what's been described in five solas, that it's by God's grace alone that we are saved, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's to the glory of God alone. And that scripture itself is the authority, not extra religious rules. And so we've seen how this was important and critical to what was recovered in the Reformation. And then as you get into chapter 3, we saw that, that our sanctification, how we are made holy and cleansed from our sin, is also done by the Spirit of God, where so many of us have a tendency that if you come to faith in Christ, then we, we move on to try to earn our way into holiness. And Paul says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by your flesh? No, we can be freed from perfectionism. We saw that we can be freed from the curse. That in 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. And so it's 
redemption, that Christ has purchased us from slavery and chains of our own sin to live in freedom and life. We saw next that we are freed from slavery to sonship as we are all adopted as sons and daughters in the family of God. And, and the beautiful statement at the end of chapter three that in Christ, we have, if we have put on Christ, we are un, unified in Jesus, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs of the promise. In, verse four, in chapter 4, no longer a slave, but a son. And so in Jesus, we don't lose our background and where we've come from, but we're knit together as one family. That the things that divide us in this world are shattered in Christ to bring us together in unity. That, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, that racial divides at the foot of the cross are leveled so we can come together as a family. Neither slave nor free, socioeconomic divides and status are, are leveled at the foot of the cross. You can't earn your way into God's kingdom, and it's a sonship, an adoption. Neither male nor female, we are all one in Christ Jesus. We saw later on in chapter 4 that we are freed from idolatry and false worship, that we're freed in the promise of God to freedom, and that, that we're freed then into, that our lives are changed, that we're freed to love people around us and to walk by the fruit of the Spirit, that if you're in Christ, your life will look like Him, and it will show up in love, in joy, in peace, and patience, in faithfulness, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and self-control. And we're freed to self-sacrifice, to bear one another's burdens. And so tonight, we come to the end of this letter that's been proclaiming freedom from start to finish. And we see tonight that we're freed to boast. And so we see that in Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. It says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation." And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so Paul talks here. He says in, in verse 11, see what, with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. And there's been all kinds of speculation reading between the lines that's come out of this. People have said, well, maybe this means the thorn that Paul has in the flesh that he talks about in the Corinthian letters. Maybe that means it's, he has bad eyesight and so he has bad writing and has to write real big. It could be. We have no idea, really. Um, it, it's likely, though, that lots of Paul's letters were, were dictated and that he had a scribe write them. And so this could mean that the entire letter to the Galatians was scrawled in his own writing. It could mean that just at the very end, after having a scribe take his dictation at the end that he, he wrote this, whatever this means, what the most important thing for us about verse 11 is that it establishes a Pauline authenticity. 
He's saying to them, look, I'm writing this to you personally. Now, we've seen Paul's fatherly heart for this church all the way through this, this, these letters. And so he, the people in Galatia, again, were fighting over circumcision or uncircumcision. And what we see here is that there was a little bit of a back and forth. There were leaders there that were trying to encourage circumcision and pushing for circumcision. And Paul says, these guys are out of their minds because they're not even willing to follow the whole law. And so they're not incorporating everything. And he exposes them and says they're not even, and and because of that, they are just trying to do it for their own pride to be able to boast in your actions, knowing that if they get enough people to join this, this movement of reintroducing circumcision into the church, then it just lifts them up as leaders. They want to boast in other people's testimonies. But it seems like there's an equal and opposite reaction here. Because in verse 15, he brings a corrective, saying neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. And so you can imagine how this happens in a church, right? That some of the people in the church decide, we've got the real path to Christian maturity. You've got to get circumcised. There's There's a pride, there's a boastfulness in that. And on the other side, you can have the immediate other reaction of people that are like, I'm not getting circumcised. You can't tell me what to do. And begin to believe that their uncircumcision actually makes them holier than those who have done the procedure. And Paul's saying, God doesn't care what you've done with regard to that procedure and the removal of that piece of skin. You're focused on the wrong things. And so he says, neither one of those is a reason for boasting. But what gets revealed in that is the same thing that we wrestle with now is we are boastful, proud creatures by nature. Every one of us does this. We do the same things. Where we'll become proud about something and sometimes it's something that we're proud of something, other times we might just be reacting against people. And so think about it this way. We can boast in our idealism or cynicism. If you are newer to D.C., you are likely very idealistic. That's great. It's, there are a lot of people that move to this place because they have a dream to change the world and they're convinced that they are going to fix what's wrong in Washington. And then you get here and you realize that nobody cares that you were the valedictorian because everyone else here is too. That your degrees, your accomplishments, your resumes, your youth, that this is the thing about moving to any global city is that you can be the best and the highest quality at whatever field you're in, in the place that you've come from, and you move into a global city and realize that you encounter people all around you who have done more and experienced more. So on the idealistic side, some of you can come into this place and you encounter cynical DC long timers and and you can have a pride over people like that and say, what are you doing? You just have to have hope and here's the reasons we're moving forward and here's all the great things, but you can become proud of your accomplishments and where you're at. And on the other side, those of you that grew up here or have been here for a while, let's face it, snark is the language of this town. Like, you don't, you don't actually get very far in building trust and relationships and friendships with people that have been in D.C. for a long time if you can't enter into that and become... But some of you have become so immersed in snark that you see hopefulness and idealism as pure marks of immaturity. Tell me I'm wrong. This happens in the church, too. 
It can happen with, with spiritual disciplines. Some of you guys have, are just by nature very disciplined people and have very set patterns that you follow and rhythms that you follow. Or maybe is if you came to Christ and you were with somebody who had a very set way that they approached their relationship with God, we can take those things. Or church programs, if you've been in a church that has impacted you deeply, that we begin to believe that this is the only way to do things. And when we encounter others who do things differently or certainly who do, it, do things less frequently, then we begin to believe that they can't possibly be as serious about their faith. And so you would find yourself in six different triads for the sake of accountability because you're always concerned about whether or not you've done enough. And on the other side, there's some of you that are like, I'll never be in a triad. I don't need that stuff. You're working to earn your righteousness. I've been freed. And your own pride can actually keep you from cultivating a relationship with God. And so we can fall off into boasting on either side. It happens with marriage and singleness. Now listen, marriage is sanctifying. I've been married now for 16 and a half years. That half is important. (laughs) Because she's still with me. And Alyssa is an instrument of sanctification in my life. When you live in that kind of proximity with somebody, you can't hide stuff. They're going to see everything you are. All the ups and all the downs. The highs and the lows. There can be a tendency among married folks, though, to believe that, well, God has used my marriage as an instrument of sanctification in my life. I wouldn't be the same person I am without it, and therefore, those who are around me and are single must be less spiritually mature because they haven't had the same opportunity for sanctification. That's ridiculous. We'd have a really hard time as we talked to Peter, I mean, to the Apostle Paul and to Jesus about their spiritual maturity. On the other side, some of you that have really embraced your singleness can get the same jadedness toward married people and think those married people, they've got, you know, they're just, they've they've got more comfort. My singleness is a gift from God and I've got more opportunity when there's some truth to some of those things. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 7, but you can become jaded against married folks. And this is when I hear comments from some of you about like, everybody in Redemption Hill is married. That's simply not true. Our church is more than 50% single people. Like, I've had people ask me, like, what do you guys do for singles ministries and young adult ministries? I'm like, we, we are a singles ministry. <laughs> There's got to be some room for us married folks, too. But we can be proud and boastful and all these things. It can be anything. I mean, you guys, some of you are at Thanksgiving with families. We don't need to get into the divisive issues of our time. But if you're just too passionate or not passionate enough about any given topic, we can become proud in those things. We are boastful, arrogant, prideful people and creatures by nature. We are naturally boastful beings. And there's an author named Paul Miller who describes these things on what he talks about as a boasting and shame scale. It's like everything in our lives is, is postured at some level. There's, we, we're always evaluating, thinking through, seeing people, and evaluating where we line up with people on a scale to, from shame to, to pride and boasting. We see it all the time. And so this, we all, and, and everything in our lives is about trying to move ourselves up that scale. And, some, and oftentimes, the way that we move ourselves up that scale is by doing what? By forcing others down it. And so we do it in the most subtle ways. I mean, yeah, there's obvious things if you're just mean to somebody, but it doesn't even take that. Think about this. If you have a meeting with somebody, you're hanging out for coffee, or you go and grab a drink somewhere, 
and you take your phone and set it on the table in front of you so that every time a message comes in, it lights up and you're looking down at your phone throughout the night. Maybe you're not even texting back. Or if you've got an Apple Watch, you feel a little buzz. You think that the other person across from you doesn't notice when you're always doing this? What are you communicating? There's something more important than you. I'm busy enough. I've got enough contacts coming in. I'm, don't you, I'm, my mind is elsewhere because there's relationships that are more valuable than this one. Think about the way that we approach people, even, even in like name dropping. You ever find yourself doing this? I mean, we all do it to some level. You want someone to see how impressive you are by proximity because you were close to somebody, because you know somebody, because you've interacted with somebody, and so you drop their name because it's a way to bring yourself up the scale and show that you're very impressive. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be actual freedom because this stuff is enslaving. And that's what we see here is a freedom to boast. Now, I, see, I know that sounds strange because we're talking, I've spent this whole time of an extended introduction tonight to talk about how, we are, how boastful we are, but Paul helps us here. In verse 14, I think this is the key to the whole text tonight. He recaps the issue in Galatia and says, this is what's happening. The circumcision is the issue, and I'm writing to you personally, and, and here's the recap of what's happening. But then verse 14, but far, far be it from me to boast... We'd almost expect him to stop there. Far be it from me to boast. We shouldn't be boastful creatures. But he doesn't. He gives an exception. He says, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And so Paul shows us what it looks like to boast Christianly what it looks like to have freedom in Christ to boast in the right things and be proud in the right things and the things that we should be pursuing, things that won't chain us down but will free us to live. So first we see, there's only four tonight, first we see that, that we need to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. What does that mean, to boast in the cross? See, I think there's times when our chronological distance from the events of Jesus' life and death and resurrection make it difficult for us to understand exactly what happened on the cross. Remember back in Galatians chapter 3 that Paul talks about this. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. And so we need to understand that, that for the Jewish people that were, that were hearing about Jesus, they were hearing that God's Messiah, God's anointed one, the, the, the one in the line of David who was supposed to come and be king, God's chosen one to lead his people, had been hanged on a tree and killed as, as a common criminal outside of the city of Jerusalem, brought outside and societally rejected, and that then in the law, in Deuteronomy, it says that he was under a curse by God because he was hanged on a tree. For us, the idea of a crucified and resurrected Messiah, if you've grown up around Jesus or heard the gospel enough, is something that we go, of course. That's what we read in Isaiah 53, which was written 700 years before Christ. Of course, that's the way that God worked it out. We need to understand, though, at the time that he was put under the heaviest curse and shame possible. 
Dorothy Sayers talks about the, talked about the three humiliations of Christ. That Christ humiliated himself by giving up his throne in, in the heavens and taking on flesh and coming as a baby. By living the fullness of the human experience, by being hungry and thirsty, by being tired and weak. That his second humiliation was going to the cross, being stripped and mocked and beaten, being exposed, abandoned, betrayed, sold off by one of his friends and killed by his own people. The Roman ex- to the eyes of the Romans, the, the, that execution was the most public way that they could come up with to deter rebellions. And there are accounts of cities, that, the roads into cities that rose up against Rome were lined with people on crosses to make a statement. The third humiliation of Christ, according to Dorothy Sayers, was then entrusting the gospel to the church. We need to understand that we live on a boasting shame scale. Always looking for ways to move ourselves up a notch or attach ourselves to people that are up a notch. Always looking for ways to subtly let people know that they're just a little farther down the scale. But Christ willingly lowered himself. He willingly went to the bottom. He willingly took on the depth of shame. Killed as a criminal, even though he's God incarnate. And Paul says, if we're going to understand what it is to actually receive the gospel and walk with Jesus, if you want to know what it means to actually be, be a Christian, then the first thing that we need to come to grips with is that we worship a crucified Lord. That the cross is central to what God has done. That our Savior is one who laid himself down and endured the worst of shame. And that's where our boasting should be. Not in ourselves, not in our accomplishments, not in our discipline, not in our, our religiosity, not in what we've been able to achieve, not in our relationships that we have, not in our reputations that we've built, not in our successes and recognition, not in the wealth that we have. All of those things are fleeting and they will pass away. We can't take any of it with us. But to have pride and hope that Christ took on the cross. That's going to change everything. It leads to the second one. We need to boast in our own weakness. And Paul doesn't get that as explicitly in this text, but he does very clearly in, in several other letters. And it flows out of this. That if we are following the path of Jesus... If we're following his steps and he's the one that's called us, that if anyone's going to come after me, then it means that he has to take up his cross daily and follow me. You've got to lose your life to find it. He is to follow him. We need to recognize that we're following a crucified Savior. And our weakness is going to be exposed. But boasting in our weaknesses just doesn't happen. That's not usually what we lead with in a conversation. Like those of you that are single, if you're pursuing somebody romantically, you usually don't grab your first cup of coffee together and say, let me tell you all the reasons you shouldn't date me. It's not going to go great. The person's going to hear that and go, excellent, thank you for saving me time. 
Now, in this town, we do self-deprecation really well. But self-deprecation is not the same as boasting in weakness. That's making excuses. It's, it could be fishing for compliments. It could be false humility. It really could just be ways that we, we like throw red herrings out of, yeah, I'm really bad at this thing, ha ha. Like, I can come to you guys and say like, hey, I'm never gonna run a marathon. That's not gonna happen. But that's not painful for me to admit to you. I think it's stupid to run 26 miles. I don't think the human body was created for that. I don't, like, I don't like to drive 26 miles. Like, I live in a six-block radius. Why would I ever run that far? And so I can say, like, well, I'm never going to run a marathon, and, and we, we can laugh it off. And I go, see, I've been humble and boasted in my weakness that I'm not built to be a runner. That, that doesn't do anything. But other areas of weakness for me, they cut deeper. They sting more. That's been one thing. Boasting and weakness has been a learning curve for me, and I'm, I'm still learning, but I've come a long way. It's, it's difficult because I, weakness isn't something I naturally think I need to pursue. I mean, I'm a guy, and I like to lift heavy things, and so I like to be physically strong. I like to think that I'm, I'm a fairly strong guy, as guys go. And it, more than that, though, like it, even in planting a church, what it means to be a man and a pastor and a leader, I've been told, and it's been drilled into me, the importance of strength in those things. When I was coming into church planting and being assessed and whether or not I should plant, start a new church before coming out to, and starting Redemption Hill, you know, one of the articles and sermons that was held up that I need to work my way through and do a self-assessment and then be assessed on was called the ox qualifications of a church planter. There's nothing weak about that. It was saying we need to have broad shoulders and be able to carry a heavy load and be able to move the thing forward and be able to charge the hill in the face of adversity for the sake of the advance of God's kingdom. And there's a lot of good things there, but it can drive something within us that caters to an unwillingness or inability to boast in our weaknesses. I was reading from one pastor this past week and he said this, and it captured so much for me. He said, in a way, I wish I could be a formidable, always successful, always smart, always witty, always energetic, always cool, always positive super pastor. Then people would admire my astonishing wonderfulness. I could always feel good about myself. I would love that. It's one thing Jesus is saving me from. How does he do it? How does he save me? He reduces me to weakness and need. And he allows me to see it for myself time after time. Then and only then do I humble myself and ask him for his grace. Then and only then is he exalted as my super savior. I am weak. I am boring. I get cranky. I fumble my words. I get into ruts. I forget people's names. I don't have all the answers, and I could go on and on with my remarkable inadequacies. But I've come to believe that the power of Christ resting on a weak man makes more impact for him than my fantasy self batting a thousand ever could. In fact, I've come to like the current arrangement. Yes, I want to be strong in the right ways. No one has ever accused me of being a wimp, but my own carnal strength needs no longer apply. When the power of Christ rests on me in all my weakness, 
everything gets better. Think about this. Think about how freeing it would be to boast in the cross of Christ and to boast in your own weakness. Think about, think about times when you've been criticized, not like surface level criticism. I mean, the, the cutting, painful, vicious criticism, the kind that sticks with you for years. It could come from a boss or a coworker, a leader, a friend. How do you react to that? If, if that person is your enemy, and you see them and receive them as your enemy, then, then your response is going to be defensive. You're, you'll be able to return insults and be able to advance your own narrative and to do it quickly and decisively so that no one will mess with you again and you protect yourself from that kind of hurt. But if you can boast in Christ and in your own weakness, it could be that that person is used as an instrument of God even when they're completely out of line. Think about it, if, if you're a parent and your kid has a really hard time with a teacher or a coach, that's a tough one for me as a dad. Like part of the reason I coach Simon's baseball right now, and I'm almost like way in way over my head at the stage we're at, so I'm gonna have to step out soon. But part of the reason I started coaching baseball was because I didn't want him to have some jerk coach. I wanted to be able to set the tone for the team. But think about it, it's really hard when your kid has a hard time with a teacher or a coach, and it could just be your kid. Um, you know, like, let's face it, parents have changed on this, right? Because I can remember when I was a kid, when I was in school, if I came home and the teacher had called home, my parents never said, you know what, we're gonna call that teacher back and I'm gonna call the principal. If they did, that was bad for me. Because they never sided with me, not once. When a call came home, they would sit me down and say, your teacher called, and I'd go, oh no. And they said, and we're assuming it's worse than what we heard. <laughs> Thanks. Now, though, it's, you get defensive, and it's, it's pretty common for that to happen, but here's again the question. Are they your enemy, or could they be an instrument of God? Do you gang up on them with your kid and talk about how bad that coach or that teacher is? Or do you allow that person to be a shaping instrument of God's work in your child's life? Paul knew what it was to embrace his own weakness, and God brought him there. It wasn't an easy path for him. He talks about this in 2 Corinthians 12, and he said, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. And we have no idea what the thorn in the flesh was for Paul. All kinds of speculation, we have no clue. We just know that there was some intense suffering that three times he went to God petitioning and pleading with him to take it away. Three times I've pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see what Paul learned in his weakness? His weakness kept him from getting conceited. It kept him from boasting in himself. And because of that, he was able to recognize that something that was a messenger of Satan 
spiritual warfare unleashed against him that caused intense suffering, he was still able to see that messenger of Satan as simultaneously a gift of God. That's not usually how I interpret suffering. I don't usually have suffering come into my life and say, thank you, Lord, for bringing this to me. It's a gift from you. The messenger of Satan's side, I get. They wanted to rebuke that suffering and figure out ways to get out of it and find ways to solve it and saying, this can't be God's will for me. I know better than he does. But Paul was able to be guarded from his own pride and conceit. He was freed to see messengers of Satan even as gifts from God. And weakness postured him to, to hear God's voice. It was weakness that opened him up and suffering that opened him up to hear the voice of Jesus. That that's when he heard Jesus saying to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And it's in weakness that the power of Christ actually rests upon us. That's freedom. Freedom to be a conduit of God's power in renewing and restoring his world. There's freedom in boasting in our weaknesses. And that leads to the next point. The third point is that we can boast, we're called to boast in suffering and in death. If we can get through the first two, we'll begin to grasp this one as well. Begin to understand what it is to trust God, to boast in the cross of Christ alone, to be freed to boast in our weaknesses. And this is the next step because suffering then isn't a great enemy to be overcome. It, it's actually a tool that God uses to speak to us, to drive us closer to Christ. And so we can, it, it, you see this in Paul that there were points at which he, when he says, I know what contentment is. Because I've, I've been able to learn how to trust God and be content in all things, whether in plenty or in want, that, that I can endure all of it because Christ gives me the strength to endure it. We see this in 2 Corinthians 12, that, that he, as he was able to boast in his own suffering and, say, and be able to boast in the, in, and be excited about what God has brought him through, that he's even able to say, I'm content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities because he came to see that in suffering he experienced the presence of God with a level of clarity that he could never experience the presence of God without it. Because otherwise his own pride would get in the way. And that's true for us too. When things go right in our lives, we are excited that it went according to our plan. When things get hard in our lives, we turn and say, God, where are you? And he's able to say, I'm right here with you. And we have the ears to hear him. It means we can have contentment in all those things. And it also means death is no longer scary. We watched, um, we introduced our kids this weekend, over Thanksgiving weekend, to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. We had them watch the three videos. We watched over 10 hours of hobbits and elves, and it was glorious. And toward the end of the Lord of the Rings, um, in, the, in the return of the king, as the battle is finally being waged, as the forces of Mordor are, are storming into Gondor and storming the city of Minas Tirith, if, you, if that means nothing to you, these, it's worth your time. <laughs> And so Pippin, one of the hobbits, had been enlisted into the force at Minas Tirith and was in like child-sized armor. And the forces of Mordor had broken through the first couple layers of the city and it looked bad, it looked bleak. They didn't know the hope that was still coming in, with the dawn. And he sat with Gandalf, the wizard, the guide of the Fellowship of the Ring. 
And Pippin, this little hobbit, looked up at him at Minas Tirith and said, said I, don't, I didn't think it would end this way. Gandalf looked down at the hobbit and said, end? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of the world rolls back and all turns to silver glass and then you see it. See what, Gandalf? White shores and beyond a far green country under a swift sunrise. Pippin said, well, that isn't so bad. Gandalf said, no. No, it isn't. Tolkien captured something there. To follow Christ is to believe that we have been given a share in the inheritance of his kingdom and light. It's to believe that death isn't the end because he's conquered death in the grave and risen to life. It's to believe that, that, that he's doing something to renew and restore all things. And when he says, I'm coming soon, when he says there'll be a new heavens and a new earth and death will be no more, and it's mourning and crying and, and sickness and sorrow will be no more, that it means that, that we can look ahead, that right now we are in a land that is consumed by the gray rain curtain of the world. Death is the opportunity for that to peel back and to bring us into the glory of God's presence. And so we can boast in suffering and death. And Paul in Galatians 6 says this kind of quizzical thing about, about this is the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And I think this plays in here of understanding what he's boasting. And he says, what he's saying, Calvin captured this. He said, to crucify the world is to treat it with contempt and disdain. This is what, what Paul said in, in Philippians chapter 3 when he said, Whatever I gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And so to be crucified to the world is to follow Jesus in his path and say, There is nothing here for me. I can give it all up and leave it all behind and embrace whatever path God has for me because I count this world itself as worthless. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said this. He said that Jesus regarded the world as nailed up like a felon and hanged upon a cross, was regarded by the world, nailed up like a felon, hanged on a cross to die. And And he regarded the world the same. He means that its character was condemned. He looked out upon a world that thought so much of itself and said, I don't think much of you, poor world. And so we're freed to boast in in weakness, in suffering, and in death, and we're finally freed to boast in a new creation. In Christ, we're given a new identity. In 2 Corinthians 5, it tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come in all of this is from God. In Romans 6, Paul says that being a new creation in Christ will also change the path of our lives and the way that we will walk, where he says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in that newness of life. And so this is what soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, is all about. 
That whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. You know, for a long time, that passage was quizzical to me, where Paul says that, where I'm like, what does that mean? How do I, like, if I go through the McDonald's drive-thru and get a double cheeseburger and a fizzy drink, does that mean that I can eat those things to the glory of God when the nutrients are suspect at best? But this can start to make sense when we understand what it means to be a new creation. How do we eat and drink to God's glory? It's by doing so as those who have been made new. Saying that by God's grace alone, through faith alone, I've been brought into his family in Christ. We can maintain a Godward posture as we walk in the the newness of that life. Focused on his glory in and through our lives. And the call that that we hear in Colossians chapter 3, as Paul said, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God, so set your mind on things that are above, not things on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And here's the promise. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That means that we are freed to live in light of the glory of Christ even now. That the joy and splendors of the new creation, what we will see when that gray rain curtain of the world rolls back and we're brought into God's presence in the, that all turns to silver glass and we see the white shores and beyond the far green country under a swift sunrise, we're brought into God's presence fully that we are freed now by boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ, by boasting in our own weaknesses, by boasting in suffering and death, becoming a new creation to actually live that eternity into our lives now. That as we gather for a meal, we celebrate communion knowing that Christ's body was broken and blood was spilled, but every time we're together as the family of God, breaking bread and raising a glass together, we do so and we can say to the king, believing that Christ is the king. That he'll have the power to bring what he said he will bring and that he has that authority in our lives now. That's what it means to boast as a new creation and to do all things to the glory of God. If we live life in this kind of freedom, a freedom to boast, then even the greatest accomplishments we'll have won't go to our heads. It'll reshape our identity and and therefore we won't be enslaved and chained down by by those accomplishments. We'll be freed in every respect. Martin Luther, who we've seen a lot through this series, wasn't a perfect guy. He had some major flaws. But he was used mightily by God as his instrument as well. He was a great reformer. He was a Bible scholar and translator. He was a man who sparked upheaval and reorganization throughout Europe's political and religious landscape. Reflecting on what happened in his life and work, Luther said this, I simply taught preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. This is what it looks like to boast in weakness to boast in suffering and death, to boast in the cross of Christ alone, and to boast as a new creation. And so church, our journey through Galatians has come to a close. 
We've seen that scripture alone is the ultimate authority, not man-made rules and laws. We've seen that by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are saved and brought into the family of God, and that all of this is to the glory of God alone. And so tonight, my prayer is that we'd be freed to boast in the shame of the cross. If you're not a follower of Christ, you need to know that this is what it is to be a Christian, is to turn to a crucified Savior who has conquered sin and death and has passed through darkness and shame into life and power and glory. Following him means that we'll be, it will lead us into greater weakness and suffering and sorrow and even death, but we'll be freed to, to boast in those things. Freed as renewed creatures, part of the new creation that God is, is, as God works to renew and restore all things to his glory. And in that, we have the promise that all of you who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon you, the Israel, the people of God. Paul says, let no one cause me trouble. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Father, would you help us to be this kind of free? To boast in Christ alone and shape our journeys to model his. Would you free us from lifting ourselves and free us to lay ourselves down? And we thank you that in the end we are promised not just to see the glory of Christ, but to be sharers in it. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.